Well, good morning everybody. Our text for today is Ephesians 4 verse 29. Please could you turn there now. Now, To state the obvious, I think it's quite evident to all of us here today that our beautiful country is in fact an island surrounded by sea. If you didn't know that, I'm very sorry for the shock. Since that is so, I'd be particularly surprised to find that there was somebody who had never walked its beaches and consequently it's almost certain that everyone here has encountered one of those nasty dead fish on their ramblings and so you will know that the visual effect of a rotten fish is eclipsed only by its smell. Now, all of us speak a great many words every day for a variety of reasons and we probably don't think too much about that. But I'm sure that we would all react strongly if someone responded to what we said in the same way that we do when we encounter a dead fish. And yet this is exactly what Paul is warning against here as we read this passage. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. May the Lord open our ears and hearts to understand what he means by these words. It's very easy to go past this verse and just mentally clock the words in passing as an instruction against swearing, which they are in part, but the warning intended is a great deal wider. And to get a feel for the depth of meaning, I'll mention the Greek word translated here as the word corrupt, which is sapros. It is not a nice word. It describes that which is rotten, putrefying, corrupt, disgusting, perishing, rank, foul, putrid and worthless. Sapros is used of things that are unusable, that are unfit, bad, and can also be used to talk about things that are harmful due to the fact that they are corrupt or defiling. And we must also understand it as a process word. And that means that it talks about something that's ongoing, it's continuously rotting, not just a one-off infection. I find that amazing. You know, these are not ideas that we would normally like to associate with our mouths, are they? Because hopefully we are very careful about what we put into them and we like to keep our mouths clean. So the idea of rottenness being associated with that particular part of our bodies, particularly in a continual way, seems really repulsive and abhorrent. And that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us something important about the seriousness of what we say from the Lord's perspective. We use so many, many words that we might be tempted to dismiss them as trivial, coming and going just like the wind. But they are not trivial. They have real force and effect, and therefore their use comes along with real consequences. One commentator I looked at demonstrates the importance of our words so beautifully by tracing the word mouth through the book of Romans to show how Christ makes a difference in a person's speech. And you'll find the references for these scriptures in your notes if you want to look them up later. 
The sinner's mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. But when they trust Christ, they gladly confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. As a condemned sinner, their mouth is stopped up before the throne of God. But as a believer, their mouth is open to praise God. You see, change the heart and you change the speech. And Paul certainly knew the difference because when he was an unsaved rabbi, he was breathing threats and, uh, and murder against Christians. But when he trusted Christ, a change took place. Behold, he is praying. From praying, E-Y, praying, to praying, A-Y, in just one step of faith. And since our words have such importance, we ought to be careful about their quality, shouldn't we? And this brings me naturally to the title of my sermon today. Let's not be fraught. Now the last word will probably be unfamiliar to you unless you know a little Afrikaans. I've picked it because A, it rhymes and hopefully will therefore be memorable. And secondly, because it also sums up the principal theme of today's passage. Now, there's a bit of an aside here. You might be looking at the V at the beginning here and wondering why I've pronounced it as an F. Well, that's just one of the little differences uh, which uh, between English and Afrikaans pronunciation, which if you know about them will help you to understand the link um, between how Afrikaans words are spelt and how they are said. Now, one example that springs to mind for rugby fans and makes me cringe continuously on the radio is that all black matches that are played in South Africa are not played on the high belt at Loftus Fares Belt, but they're played at Loftus Fares Belt. And even closer to home is the name of our very good pastor, Tolfane. Now, it might have been confusing on occasion for you to hear me or someone else call him Colfane when you know him as Calvin. But when we apply this little rule of V's as F's and add another rule of a Y sounding like a hard A, we can see that Mr. and Mrs. Yonker actually named their bouncing baby boy Colfane. It doesn't really matter what you call him because he responds to either name if he's called nicely. Here, boy. Anyway, I digress. I digress. Let's get back to that word, frot. Okay, it's very well aligned with our theme, because basically, frot just means rotten, as in that orange is frot, hey, which is indicating a fruit you would be very well advised not to eat. However, as with many words that can be said with feeling, it's become an expression of choice for many South Africans to describe anything that they don't really like. Again, using a rugby example, a pair of boots that have been worn a few, few times too often can be termed fraught by unfortunate people in the same room as the wearer. And there once was a movie review in the paper with this headline, Slick Flick, Fraught Plot. So Paul's appeal to us is not to be fraught. What is he talking about? How will we do this and what sort of rottenness does he mean? After all, we know that there are two kinds of fraughtness. One that comes following a living thing's death and affects the whole body, and the other that only affects just a part, such as an infection of some kind. Is Paul 
calling us to avoid a particular pattern of behavior? Or is it pointing to something bigger, something more profound? Well, in thinking through this, there was a scripture that immediately sprang to mind. Our passage today concerns speaking. Corruption that comes out of the mouth. Is that, is that where the speech started? Is that where the rottenness started? Is it the tongue's fault alone? Well, no. Luke 6.45 says this. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. From this it's clear that the source of what we say is our hearts. Now, of course we're not talking about that lump of muscle in our chest. We're, we're talking about character here, the inner self that thinks, feels and decides because in the Bible heart has a much broader meaning than just a bodily organ. Nearly all the references to it in the Bible refer to some aspect of human personality. So let's just have a quick look at that. To begin with, as you might expect, all emotions are experienced by the heart. Love and hate, joy and sorrow, peace and bitterness, courage and fear. And the thinking processes are said to be carried out by the heart. And this intellectual activity corresponds to what we would call the mind in English. Thus, the heart may be said to think, to understand, imagine, remember, be wise, and to speak to itself. Decision-making is also carried out by the heart. Purpose, intention, and will are all activities that are said to be centered there. And finally, in Scripture, the heart often means someone's true character or personality. Purity or evil, sincerity or hardness, and maturity or rebelliousness, all these describe the heart or true character of individuals. So when we follow this chain of logic, that the mouth speaks from the heart, and the heart represents the whole character of a person, it stands to reason that today's text isn't concerned just with a localized infection, but most definitely with a widespread and comprehensive corruption that is present throughout the whole body. A corruption that affects one's emotions, thinking, decision-making, and personality. Gee, that's a, that's a big problem. If that's at scale, then what are we going to do? Well, I believe the answer was given to us very recently from a text that we read not too long ago in Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man that was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Thanks to our salvation through Christ, God's promise of a new covenant that was made back in Jeremiah 31, a covenant that wasn't written on stone, but on our living hearts, has come to pass. Through the work of Jesus, we have become new in heart, 
in all the ways that we've just been talking about. Emotions, thoughts, decisions and personality. However, there remains a layer of the old man covering those. Just like you might think of a sack covering a pile of shining jewels. And this is why we are told to put off the old man and put on or display the new. And of course, one very important and obvious way that we do this is with these flappy things, our lips. What we say clearly shows our hearts, what is inside us. So the question Paul is asking us is, by our speech, do we reveal to everyone the corruption of sin, or do we blossom with the beautiful flowers of eternal life, with that new man? Well, let's talk about him a bit more. Where does the new man come from? Is it from a self-help book? Um, a course that involves walking on wobbly ropes very high above the ground? Perhaps there is a pill that one can take. Well, certainly all of these things have a possibility to change us, but I'd say that none of them would cause any of our friends to say, hey, that looks like Dave, but he's behaving like a new man. So, to genuinely find this new man, we'll need to look in two places because this problem has very different implications for those who are saved and those who are not saved. And that word saved is wholly appropriate today because our everyday experience of corruption is that once properly started in something, that thing cannot be saved. An apple might start out red and firm and glossy. But leave it lying around for a few days and it will soon start to sag and smell. And once it's in that state, no amount of refrigeration or potions applied to it will help. It's fraught. It will stay fraught. And the consequence is that if it's left alone, it will just completely disappear as the microbes at work inside reduce it to its component parts. And much closer to home, that will be the spiritual situation for all humans too, because unless they know God's grace, they are doomed to the same end, because only God's grace can save a corrupt thing. All people are rotting on the inside spiritually because of sin. It's inescapable. It's our nature, just like that unattended apple. However, there is one very significant difference, which is that apples don't have an eternal spirit like people. As I said, a rotten apple will eventually just blow away like dust, and no one knows or cares about its fate. But the spirit of a person lives on after death. How? In their old house, banging doors and moving things around, or maybe in the cemetery as a hovering light? No. I'll be very direct here. Scripture tells us that when we die, there are only two possibilities. Heaven or hell. Heaven is extremely good. But hell is a good deal worse than extremely bad. And what's more, the experience isn't finite. It doesn't have an end. It is eternal forever. 
So either eternal joy or eternal pain will certainly be the final existence of every human ever born. Why is this so? Well, when God created everything, his intention was for men and women to exist in a perfect, harmonious and joyful relationship with him. Not as robots, like some kind of cosmic toy set, but with real freedom of choice. Unfortunately, that privilege was misused, and we disobediently chose to sin. And what we have to understand is that God isn't half-hearted about disobedience like we are. Because he is perfectly holy, sin is completely repulsive to him, and it absolutely requires punishment. He can never let a sinner go on their way with just a stern talking to. He must apply the correct measure for a holy God. And this is why the consequence of sin is eternal separation from God and death. The opposite, the very opposite of what we have been created for. Now this perhaps sounds cruel and frightening. Gives us a picture of an angry and punishing God that maybe we don't want to confront. And undoubtedly he can be. But, thankfully and marvelously, this is only part of his character. Because God is also gracious and kind and loving to a most extraordinary degree. And he absolutely delights in being that way. I believe that it is his first choice of being. And back when sin entered the world, it caused him a problem. He wanted to love, but he had to punish sin. So how could he do the first without crushing his creation in the second? And this is where there is the really good news, friends, the gospel news. Because Jesus, the only Son of God, agreed to come to earth as a man and die on a cross to bear that punishment for mankind's behalf. He paid our debt. He paid your debt. He made you a new man. So I need to ask you, have you personally embraced this offer? This miraculous salvation from the inevitable and horrible consequences of corruption. If not, well why not? And why not now, in this moment? I do implore you to give God's salvation through Jesus your most serious attention because it is literally the difference between your life and your death. Think about it and act. So that's the first way to find a new man who does away with the fruit of our spiritual corruption. The answer for the unsaved. But what about the second position? What about corruption and those who are saved? For sure, for those who have repented of their sins and taken Jesus as Lord and Saviour, there is definitely an escape from the deadly consequences of rottenness at the end of our earthly lives. But unfortunately there remains an enduring problem with it whilst we are alive. Because sin and fleshly life are inescapably connected. As long as we live, we're going to continue to sin. 
So, should we give up? Knowing that no matter how large the collective sin is during our lives, that Jesus' sacrifice is big enough to pay the price for it? No! May that never ever be our thought. Although we have gained escape from God's wrath through this free and undeserved gift of atonement, we must know that we cannot carry on thereafter willy-nilly with the lives of corruption we once led. In order to be called a Christian, to truly belong to the family of God, one must repent of one's sins and take Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And that word repenting is very important. It means literally to turn around, to take another road. And this means that things can never be the same again. We can't be seen travelling by the old paths. And this is why we're talking today about the action of putting off the old man and putting on the new. I used the illustration earlier of a sack that covered up a pile of jewels. And with this in mind, we can maybe imagine a picture of two little versions of ourselves. Okay? One named repentance and one named sin. And repentance is a heroic fellow who runs around energetically, mightily striving to lift and strip away bits of that coarse covering to reveal what shines underneath. While sin, on the other hand, well, he's slinking around in the shadows. He's pulling and twitching and tugging at the cloth with dirty hands to cover it up again. So, an important and practical way of helping our friend repentance to expose our new man is by refusing to let corrupt speech come from our mouths because it does not glorify God who has so graciously redeemed and rescued us. Now, it might seem to be a very easy thing to know when we are using the wrong kind of language. And for sure, some words are so ugly that there is no doubt about them. But I want to take a quick look at Galatians 5 to talk about some other stuff that mightn't be so obvious. And here we read this, Galatians 5, 19-21. And I know that some of us here know this by heart, and that's a real blessing. And I'd encourage all of us to try to, to set these words in our hearts. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this passage, it talks about works of the flesh, doesn't it? So it might normally be associated with things that we do rather than we say. But speaking... It's an action, isn't it? And I believe we demonstrated the link between the flesh and our voices earlier when we spoke about the influence of the heart. In that light then, some of the ways we corruptly speak these works of the flesh out are very obvious. Things like bad language and smutty jokes, for example. However, the link between speaking and some of the others might be a bit less apparent. So I'm going to pick a few of them just to look at now. So... How about idolatry for the first? 
On first thought, idolatry probably brings you visions of people who are bowing down before some sort of grotesque carving with too many teeth and lots of arms. Which it is, of course. But it can also be a great deal more subtle. So, here's a question. Relatively speaking, and I'm probably talking mostly to the blokes here, how much time would you spend talking about the Lord compared to time talking about your toys? Fishing rods, the boats, stereo system, the widescreen television. I hope I've got my ashamed face on here because I stand guilty of those. And when our hearts are on things and not on the Lord, then this can be a kind of idolatry. And sadly, with our mouths, we can encourage others to do the same. Now, I want to be very emphatic here. I'm not suggesting a legalistic prohibition about ever talking about fishing or painting. After all, it is God who has granted us the possibility to enjoy those things, isn't it? But I do want to get us thinking about just where those things sit in our hearts and how we express that to those around us. And that's kind of a blanket warning for some of the other stuff that's coming up shortly. So, how about contentions? What are contentions? Well, it's just a flash word for arguing. We all have opinions. Some are right and some are wrong. And they usually aren't the same as the folk next door to us. The thing is, can we discuss any differences to the point where we might good-naturedly agree together or perhaps even agree to disagree? Or is such an exchange characterised by ugly, pig-headed and unreasonable objections? We know that we're wrong, but we refuse to give ground. Does that ring any bells for anyone? And that's a kind of corrupt speech. Then there's selfish ambitions. Unfortunately, sometimes we might deliberately say things about other folk when they aren't around that cause the people hearing us to believe certain things about that third party's character, which aren't true. There are lots of reasons we might do this, and I can't think of any of them that are good. For example, we might want to feel superior in knowledge or status. But this type of speech is just plain ugly and it's completely contrary to our calling and our example. Let's not forget that our Lord Jesus came as a servant. Mark 10.45 The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Despite being God, Jesus didn't have ambition for himself. He never boasted about his power or about being tight with the Father and the Spirit. He came to serve humans and his example calls us to do the same for those around us. Let's not be found using corruptly ambitious speech. Now we've spoken so much about corruption so far you might be wondering if I've forgotten the rest of the text. But the second part of today's scripture says 
that instead, instead of that sort of talk, we should instead speak what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. What do you suppose that might look like? Well, since we took our example of the wrong stuff from Galatians 5, we can also take an example of the right stuff from the same place, but starting in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with all its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As I said, this is such a special piece of scripture. It's so powerful to be able to remember. Because here is a master list that we can use to compare what we are saying with the perfect standard of the Holy Spirit. Is what we are saying joyful or loving? Does it bring peace to the hearer? Does our speech demonstrate patience? Do we take the time to listen? Consider and reply when we feel the need to hurry? Or perhaps can we hold back that angry reply to provoking mockers? Do we show from our lips that God is good and that all that comes from and through him is also good? Friends, let's just try to imagine a world where this is how everybody speaks. It would be such a better place to live in, wouldn't it? And the thing is that we have the possibility to start to build such a space by our own example, both here as we attend church and by the way we use what we say in ordinary lives, to bring grace rather than grief. That would be a work worth doing, wouldn't it? Now, that maybe sounds like a good place to end, but we, before we do so, and uh, I'd like to say that you're allowed a small groan at this point. Can I have a good groan? Oh, isn't it? Oh, that's great. That's good. Now we've got that out of the way. I want to very briefly make some practical suggestions about how to deal with corrupt speech. Now, so far, I've mostly spoken about nipping fraughtness in the bud. Cutting it off with the lips, so to speak. But that isn't really the best solution, because in that case we're merely camouflaging the old man. We're not casting him off. What we should really aspire to is not having the necessity for a Kieran Reed tackle on the tongue at the very last moment. Because what naturally rises to our lips instead is the fruit of the new man, the one rooted in love, joy, peace and kindness. One thing is for sure, if we aspire to the new as, we, as our default setting, we will never succeed in chucking the old one away without chucking away the things that he lives on. So it's very important to be careful about what we watch, what we read and what we listen to because these affect our thoughts and emotions which in turn drive the things that we say. I'm sure that time spent reading and meditating on God's word 
isn't going to drive us to argue with the lady next door over the height of the hedge. Whereas watching Neighbours from Hell on our TV might just do that. Another helpful strategy could be to make ourselves accountable to someone we trust to help us hear when we have blundered. And by the way, this has to come along with a no attack clause. Because it might be hard to be open to this criticism. But it's very often that we need to be reminded by someone that won't go away like we can make our consciences go away. The next suggestion is, if you foul up, fess up. I'm sorry that I spoke to you that way. Proverbs 15.1 tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It might seem that once we have said something unfortunate, that the situation can't be redeemed. But that's not always the truth. The truth is that often we make things worse. We press on in spite of the knowledge of our offence. Piling harsh word on harsh word simply because we are too proud to accept our error. And this does no good for us. Because it will always inflame the situation. And it's feeding that old man. And it's a poor example and witness to those around us. So the right thing to do is to apologise. And can I go on to say, not just to the person wronged, but we also need to go privately to God because we have sinned. And this way we can make some amends to calm that storm. Finally, it's very important to understand that none of this means that we should act in a false way or not speak the truth. We shouldn't be trying just to hide our corruption because then we are only making a bad situation worse by playing a game. We must be true in thought, action and speech, bearing in mind those inspirations from Galatians 5 as we do. So, I'll end here. There's a Chinese proverb that says that the fastest horse cannot catch a word spoken in anger. So, let's try to not be found setting that horse to flight in the first place. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the gift of speech. Lord, it truly is a gift. Because there are so many wonderful things that we can do with our mouths. Lord, help us to use our gifts properly for your glory. Set in us the recognition of when we're going wrong and the courage to correct it when we do. And Lord, I pray that all of these things might be done for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.